You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m., 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Eric Bradlow, Audi Weiner, Shane Jensen, some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. We're on a good run of all four of us being here. For 2019, we might be four for four every, every week. We're just off the phone with Neil Payne rolling into our second guest segment. You guys can join us if you'd like, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter, our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall, you can send us questions, observations, over, under suggestions, whatever you'd like. In this segment, delighted to welcome to the show Shane Battier. Shane, longtime NBA player after an illustrious college career and now a vice president of basketball development and analytics with the Miami Heat. We're going to find out a little bit about what he's doing and talk about his career in the NBA. Shane, welcome to the show. Cade, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, the office down in, in uh, beautiful Miami. Actually getting thunderstorms, but uh, it's a good place to be in the winter. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. You were raised in the Midwest, is that right? I'm from uh, just outside Detroit, Michigan. Okay. So, uh, you know, I left home, started at, at Duke, and uh, been in, in the south ever since. So yeah. when, I go, when I go north, I got that thin blood. I'm, I'm so soft now. So <laughs> Those and I have a slight chill. Well, you can't go much further south than where you are now, so you found you found a good place. Listen, man, we're, we'd be glad to talk to you anytime. We had a chance to talk with you a few years ago at the People Analytics Conference, and um it's always interesting, especially with you working now kind of in the analytics side of things. But, of course, today we had a special cause to reach out to you. We noticed a couple of weeks ago, just happened to notice. I went back and read the No Stats All-Star article that Michael Lewis wrote mostly about you in 2009 and noticed that the, the date was – the 10-year anniversary was coming up. It surprised me. I couldn't believe it was 10 years. But that's today. You know, we consider it one of the great, you know, popular pieces in this field. We professors assign that article all the time in classes, and it, it motivates a lot of what, what we think about and what we do. So we thought we'd touch base with you and find out, you know, 10 years later what you think about the article, what implications it had in your life, and, and maybe maybe get your reactions to some of the specifics in the article. But let's start just at the top. Like, what did you think of the article when it came out? What kind of reaction did you get right in the wake of the thing? Well, first of all, the, the process of spending uh, weeks with, with Michael Lewis uh, was, was unlike anything I had been a part of uh, before. Uh, he, he really is a, a brilliant person and uh, a brilliant thinker. And he really, for the first time, I was forced to look at my own career in a, in a much different uh, light and much different way. Really? Um, you know, I, I, I thought I'd just play basketball. And I, I thought the <laughs> things that I did – uh, were just about helping the team win, and I, I knew I was I was pretty good at, at doing little things, whether it's getting loose balls or taking charges or uh, setting screens or running back on defense. You know the real sexy parts of, of basketball. Right. Uh, but it really wasn't until Michael Lewis said, "No, like 
these things have a value and these things are are supremely unique in the NBA and uh, you need to tell your story. And so I never looked at myself as, as anything special. I, I did those things because I just wanted to play. I just wanted to stay on, on, the, on the floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, j- just being able to spend time with Michael and, and watch a film of myself, which I hate to do, was, mm-hmm. my, was my least favorite thing in, in, in my career. Uh, but it, it gave me a new appreciation and a new way to to, to look at the game and uh, the the article the No Stats All Star really it, it really gave me validation and, and changed my life and you know I, I owe a, a, I think I owe a royalty check to, to Michael Lewis every month uh, for the amount of speeches and, and attention I still get because of that article is that true okay so so we're not the only ones that are big fans of the article you've actually you've <laughs> had a, there's been real consequence to you down the road. It, it has, you know, and, and that's that's I, I, that's a great testament to to Michael. Uh, he's he's just really uh, tremendous at, at making uh, the arcane, which analytics can can often be, uh, much more digestible for for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that that that's his talent. It's fascinating to hear that it made it in some ways more digestible for you to to to, to spend time with him and hear his take on your game. That all of a sudden you see things about your own game. Differently, it's fascinating. Really, do you think you played any differently? You must have played differently in the NBA than the NCAA. So you were National Player of the Year. You were you won that you won the national championship in your last year there at Duke. I mean, you'd you'd, been, you'd had a phenomenal career to that point. Did you consciously set out to change your game when you went to the NBA? No, uh, you know my, my career uh, was was predicated on the same principles I I learned when I was a first and second grader playing with my buddies. On, on the street corner, and that was do what you have to do to win games and do what you have to do to make sure your team stays on the court and gets the run. And, uh, you know, whether that was YMCA ball, the Birmingham YMCA in, in fourth grade or the NBA finals, it was all about uh, what do I have to do to help my team win, be it big, be it small, do whatever it takes. Um, but, I, but I will say, I will say that the – the trade to Houston and learning under Daryl Morey and Sam Hinkie and learning uh, just really what analytics were about, especially in basketball, it did change my mentality as a basketball player. In what way? And, uh, I, became, I became almost obsessed with efficiency. Mm. And I became supremely aware of, of what was bad and what was good for me, um, not only as a defensive player, but as an offensive player. And I think in the end, it, it cost me an amazing amount of offensive creativity. I was so calculated mm. um, on the offensive end. I think my last year, I think I took, <laughs> in, in a lot of minutes that I played, I think I took like three uh, two-point dribble jumpers. Oh, wow. That. Okay. Uh, and so, but then that was conscious. That was completely. But defensively, it was a huge boon to my career, and I understood the uh, just how to play off the the inefficiencies of my opponents. So, so, give, so can you was, give us an example of a way some stats or analysis by the Rockets front office helped you defensively? Well, you know, you know, look in, in the old days, and this, this is still prevalent. The scouting report on, on some of the great all stars, like Kobe Bryant, were where, you know, Kobe's got a great right hand. Kobe's a great finisher. Uh, Kobe uh, draws a lot of fouls. You know, yeah, those are all true, but those don't help you out as a defender uh, a whole lot when you're trying to formulate a game plan. Uh, But I knew when I played for the Rockets, the the scouting reports that I got, I knew when Kobe Bryant went to his right hand and shot a paint shot 
when you factor in makes and misses, fouls, turnovers, passes to teammates, and their makes and misses, it was a 63% shot. All right, mm-hmm. that's that's death as a defender. Mm-hmm. And if you go, if I make Kobe Bryant go to his left hand and take that dribble jumper outside the paint, and you factor in makes, misses, fouls, three throws, turnovers, passes to teammates, that's only a 42% shot, wow. effectively. Okay. So you don't need to be a rocket scientist. You don't need to go to Wharton to understand that 42% is much better for me as a defender than 62%. Mm-hmm. And so it, it became a game of constant trade-offs for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I started to look at basketball. And it was, it was much more, it was a lot less colorful, a lot more black and white for me. Right. Shane, this is Eric Brad. I wanted to follow up with that. Is the skill you're talking about, is it a learned skill or is it something that someone is like, in other words, you showed a willingness to do this, but do you think, like, you're, you have a role with the Heat now. Can every NBA player just sacrifice for the good of the team? Or do you think, how do you think about that now that you're in a management Huge role? Huge question. Hugely important question. Well, I do think it's a, it's a, it's a learned skill. Um, it, for me, it was a matter of, of survival. And, and a matter of, look, if I don't do these things, I'm not going to play because I'm not that athletic and I'm, I'm not that good enough. Um, in terms of the analytics and doing the little things, it's, it's about raising awareness. So if I can, if I can raise uh, you know, one of my teammates' awareness about, yeah, this, this play is really important. Like running back on defense, it's not sexy, but, it, but it's important and it adds up. And, and that's how I learned all these little plays – and it was a learned skill, add up to big plays. Mm-hmm. And uh, so absolutely you can learn it, but it takes awareness. And it's like going to math class. And after I graduated from school, I don't want to do math anymore. <laughs> right. but, I, but, I, but I saw the advantage, and, and, it, and it paid off in the long run. And who are the players in the NBA today? You know, I, just a player that was on, I think he's still on the Miami Heat, that I always thought of this way was Udonis Haslam. You know, a guy who did, you know, obviously didn't have this three-point shooting ability that you did, but someone that, when he was on the court, always was in the right place, always did the dirty work, always had to cover one of the toughest players on the other team. Who, When you look around the NBA today, who do you see as the, if you'd like, the heir apparent to the way you use trade-offs and analytics um, that might not be seen by others? You know what? Tampering is a hot word in the NBA today, and I do not want to be uh, busted for tampering, so I, I can't really comment on other players. But uh, it's funny you bring up Udonis Haslam. Uh, you know, he's a guy who lived and swore by the mid-range jumper, and now, you know, his 16th year in, you know, you watch, you come to a Miami Heat game and see him warming up before the game. You know, he's making like eight out of ten threes from the corner. And here's a guy who swore like, no, my, the two-point jumper is is my bread and butter. I'll never, I'll never shoot threes. And now he's even he's shooting threes. You know, 16 years in, so it, it's amazing to see the evolution of, of players and the education of players in 2019. So um, the you talked about the offensive analytics maybe robbing you of some creativity, and there is some concern that this obsession with Mori Ball as some people call it, you know, all threes or drives or nothing, no two-point shots, is um, it's not really the end. The end is winning games, and it's a, it's a means. We think it's the best means toward winning the game, but if it, if it becomes too much the focus, then you start losing efficiency again. Did you Were you alluding to that a little bit, and, and did you, are you concerned about that at all, that if you, dry, if you too exclusively focus on some of these metrics, you actually start missing the big picture again? Well, it depends on, on 
what you're talking about. Uh, from a pure entertainment value, is it awesome to see one-on-one play and, and see a great step-back jumper and, and with, with a guy draped all over your face? Yeah, that's, that's great entertainment. And I think as basketball fans, we all enjoy those one-on-one situations. And, you know, the open three-point shot isn't as exciting as a one-on-one battle. Uh, but as a player, look, we are all trying to maximize uh, our, our individual potential. And players are smarter these days. And they know, look, if I take a lot of inefficient shots, I'm not maximizing what I could uh, do for my team offensively. And in turn, that's going to cost me financially down the road. And so players are just super smart about maximizing their points and maximizing their, their chances. And it's a natural extension that, you know, threes are good and those other shots aren't so good. All right. So uh, the, what about the, the unselfishness? Is that something also – so you're saying – Look, the stats now capture what really matters, and since that's in the player's best interest, since it's now captured, then start people start doing what really matters, threes and drives. What about on the, all the unselfish things? You ran through a quick list of go loose balls, taking charges, um, setting screens, getting back on defense. If you want players to do that, unless they're wired to be unselfish, you need to be rewarding them in some way for it. You do, need to be able to quantify yeah, that in a so, way that, that sort of allows them to kind of get the recognition for those actions. How close do you think we're getting to, to, to that? How close are we getting to capturing all those little unselfish things that, that make a team better but may not be in the individual's best interest? We're closer, uh, but it's, it's like SpaceX uh, launching a rocket into space. We're, we're still a long ways away from, from, <laughs> from reaching our, mm-hmm. our destination. You know, and the funny thing, and now that I'm, uh, I'm in analytics day-to-day, um, I, I, I appreciate culture even more. Right. And I didn't think I would, I'd feel that way. I, I always thought, no, data is, is the key, uh, but knowing what data can do, it's enhanced by understanding culture. And I, you know, I do a lot of corporate speaking. I do a lot of speaking to, to, to players and, and, and different people. And I say, look, no one ever asked me how many points I scored, how many rebounds I, I, I grabbed, how many threes I made in my career. I get two questions only about my career. They ask, where do you keep your rings? And how do you decide which one you want to wear? <laughs> And, like, it's funny, but, like, that's an elegant way that I would love for people to describe my legacy. Where do you keep your rings, and yeah. how, much, how do you decide what you want, what you want to wear? And I, and I tell people, look, if you win, no one cares what your numbers are. No mm-hmm. one cares what your resume says or the titles or the titles behind it. Were you part of a winning team, and did you have a role? And if you were, you will always be valuable, and people will always want to be around you. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the way I, I, I look at that. So you're, you're hitting us on culture. I think it's an important message for analysts. And I think some of the great, great front office folks across sports who led the, led the kind of revolution in analytics missed this to some extent in the beginning. You know, you talked to Billy Bean about what he did with the A's, and he said, you know, he's backed off to some extent using numbers exclusively. It seems to me that the, the guys who do best are people who are interested in analytics, appreciate it, but also understand the value of culture. So, for example, Brad Stevens, I know, preaches both hard, works on both hard, and is considered one of the best minds in, in basketball. So you, you've been through a number of successful, to say the least, basketball programs. What can you tell us about that culture side of things? It's harder for us as analysts to appreciate. Where does it come from? What are the key elements? I mean, if we're going to pursue it, it can't just be this ephemeral thing that happens or doesn't happen. What have you learned in your experience about 
when it occurs, when it gets going in the right direction, and when it doesn't or gets going in the wrong direction? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been so fortunate to play for, for amazing coaches from, from Coach K, uh, Coach Keener from Detroit Country Day Schools, coaching the McDonald's All-American game this year. I'm proud of him. Congratulations. Oh, wow. oh that's great. Uh, you know, uh, Eric Spolstra and, and, and Rick Adelman and Hubie Brown. Uh, look, it's t- talented teams that play together will beat, always beat more supremely talented teams that don't play together. And uh, it's, at the end of the day, it's still about people. We're not playing basketball with robots yet. Uh, we are dealing with, with the, the human condition, with emotion, and it is still about extracting what potential each player brings. And that comes down to humanity, that comes down to culture, that comes down to psychology. Uh, but with that said, people who figure out the culture piece and pair it with the data piece mm-hmm. are those who gain surplus. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the people who just have the, the, the culture aspect but don't bring in the data, right. they, they lag behind. Right. People, who have the, people who have the data but don't have the culture piece lag behind. People, culture, plus data, those are the winners now and for the foreseeable future. What, what We often give credit to these coaches, as we should in many cases, for that cultural piece. What role do the do players play in culture? And is that presumably as you're thinking about who to sign coming out of college or who to try to you know pull in the free agent market, you must be thinking of what's the what's their contribution going to be? Not just you know on the stat sheet, even advanced stat sheet. You're going to be thinking about what's their contribution in the in the locker room um, on the road. What's your sense of that? Like what what's the relative contribution of players? And can you identify that before you get them in the building? Well, that's that's our challenge. I think every team right now is, is waking up and going to their their data departments and trying trying to figure out that piece because we realize that's a huge, huge piece. Uh, that we're all trying to find, you know, that we've tried to find traditionally through through scouting, and through watching a, watching a, a guy play numerous numerous times, um, and there's there's no great answer right now. You know, mm-hmm. there are, there are a lot of psychology metrics that are out there, and companies that are that are pushing different psychology and and, and social metrics, and uh, I think there's some value there. Is it the answer? I don't think quite yet, mm-hmm. uh, but they're all part of an omnibus model that we're all trying to build. And mm-hmm. so every little piece may help and, you know, may get us 1% closer to the answer. Uh, but that's, that's the, uh, that's the elusive unicorn right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Shane Battier in his second season down in Miami with the heat as VP of basketball development and analytics, following a 13 year career with the NBA long career at the NBA, and then a, a crazy successful career at Duke in, in, the, in the NCAA. Shane, this is uh, Adi Weiner. Um, I want to ask you kind of like a big picture kind of question that relates a little bit to sort of what I do. So I'm an analyst, but not, I mean, who really gets in the weeds with the data, develops methodology, and really thinks about it from the the analytic side of of data. And for me, sports is just a wonderful application of data analytics. For you, and this is in in basketball, I see a, a huge change, and I'm kind of trying to figure out exactly what is uh, what is the principal driver for why analytics is is taking over basketball? And the, the the two sides of it that I see is is it the of data availability? Is that the huge change, or is it the willingness among the management to use the data? And where do you come down on the on the side? Obviously, it's a balance in some portion between the two. But where do you see the balance lie? You know, to, le- to leverage a lot of uh, uh, 
knowledge and experience that's in the business world, look, businesses are always trying to uh, increase their, 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 their bottom line by becoming more efficient. And it's no different in basketball. We are all trying to find ways to identify talent better, more efficiently. To you know, obviously, we live in a salary-capped, uh, confined environment, and so we are dealing with a with a with a salary-capped constraint. The teams that spend their their money the most efficiently in that environment are the teams that win, and so. Leveraging the data, which we all look at as, as a tool, not, not, not the answer, uh, will help us ultimately make more efficient uh, decisions and, and hopefully just mitigate our risk. And that is it's a little bit different way to think about constructing a team versus you know, the, the, the 90s or 80s pre-analytics, but uh, it's, it's a tool to really just mitigate your risk and understand what what the risk we're taking now in in, in our salary cap world. Mm-hmm. Shane, this is Eric Bradlog, and I have a question. Um, for a number of years, I did work for the Eagles and Howie Roseman, Joe Banner, uh, etc. And I wanted to ask you, I have this dream that on draft day when the Heat are drafting players, you're using analytics as a decision support tool, meaning you, know, you guys are on the clock and someone's saying we should draft player A and that you might be there either with a sheet or whispering into whether it's Pat Riley or Spolstra's ear and saying, you know what? The advanced analytics suggests this player may not be the right player. Am I dreaming that that's part that you use analytics as a decision support tool, like at the heated moments, right at the big moments of decision, or is that not really how it works? <laughs> it's it's an input. It's an input, just like our our our, our director, of, our head of personnel, Adam Simon. Uh, he's an input, and Andy Ellisberg, who is running the numbers on the salary cap side, is an input. And Pat Riley's, you know, heart and his, his brain, uh, which is a, which is a huge tool and, our, and a reason for our success. The Miami Heat is a part of that, and so uh, you know, it's about diversity of opinion. And the, the the more opinions that you you can have, and if your leadership can can sort of rake through the, the different levels of information uh, to glean what's, what's important and what's not, uh, that's, that's the value. That's the value. And I wouldn't say one, one is more important than the other, uh, but they're all just inputs. So Shane, influencing the decision makers on draft day is a, is a big part of analytics, an important challenge, but also influencing players on the court to listen to this stuff. So you were predisposed, I'd say, to the data that Hinky and Maury had when you arrived at the Rockets. Now you've got this challenge of having to pull guys who may or may not have that disposition to use some of the data that you think would be helpful to them. What have you found in that challenge? And I, and I remember, I think you told a story about persuading LeBron James to, to, <laughs> to use um, some of these back in the day when you were, as a, when you were a player. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, for my money, LeBron's the greatest of all time. And I like to think I helped him probably a half of a quarter of a percent when I told him <laughs> to make, uh, you know, Kevin Durant shoot over his, uh, his left shoulder versus his right shoulder in the post. And luckily he missed three shots. And oh, wow. After, after the game, LeBron said, hey, Batman, you know, what, what, what else you got for me? Uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, yes. Uh, you know, look, math is scary. It's scary for a lot of people. And it, it can be really intimidating, and it's no different than when I played. Uh, I, th- I thought that Sam Hinkie and Daryl Morey did a great job of explaining to me in plain English what uh, what those numbers meant. Mm-hmm. And I would literally sit with Sam Hinkie before the game, and we would play like a game. He he would give me two uh, 
two scenarios, and he would say, you know, you you got to you got to close out on one guy and give up one shot. Would you rather give up Kyle Korver from the from the, the mm. corner, mm. or you know, you know, Jared Jeffries on the on the wing? And uh, you know, obviously he knew all the answers, and so uh, just by by dealing with those real world real world situations where I had to make a split decision on what would save me the most surplus, and it may be a half a point. It may be. You know, so what's the answer, points. by the way? Yeah, that was which one? Question. I, I, would, my, I, was, I was thinking Kyle Korver. The naked eye. I'm not yeah. giving up Three Kyle Korver in the. Uh, I'm not giving Kyle Korver in the corner. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the answer. That's, that's the way to get subbed out real quick. All right, so <laughs> Shane, how hard is it to to to, to adapt that? How, how hard is that to get that into your system during the game? You've got so many things to keep keep on top of, and you've got so many instincts going. How do you start baking that stuff into your instincts? It's it's practice. It's practice. It's, it's no it's no different than working on your left hand or or training in the off season, working on your your jumping ability. It's something you just have. It's a muscle you have to exercise every single day. And so I had a routine. I had my information stat packet before uh, every game. That I sat in the hot tub. I drank a Gatorade and I read my stats and I went over them and over them and over them. And that was my routine. And so uh, it, it takes time and it takes effort. But I saw the fruits, and I, I believe they created an advantage. So it's, mm-hmm. just, it's, it's like any, any other basketball skill. Mm-hmm. This Eric again. Do you think analytics uh, has affected age curves? We were talking about that this morning. You know, Lindsey Vaughn, oldest person just to win a skiing medal. We see Tom Brady at forty-one winning the Super Bowl. We're fortunate to have a, a Dookie, JJ Redick here who looks ageless. The guy just you cannot leave him <laughs> open at any point at any part of the court. Do you think that analytics has changed age curves, and you'll see people? playing into their mid to late 30s at a much more successful level? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and where the analytics have helped all those aforementioned people is the education on nutrition and physical health. And uh, the research and the data that, that proves that that maintaining a, a low-fat diet and maintaining your body fat and, and uh, training all year round and yoga and Pilates uh, – people are much more educated about how to have a long career. And it's not just about making the league. When I, when I came in the league, it was about, oh, man, I just, I just need to make the league. I just need to get in. Now, if people say, no, I want to stay in the league. I want to play 12 to 16, 17 years now. And it's a different wow. mentality. And, and I think players are taking a much longer view on, on what their career uh, could, could be. Shane, we're down just the last couple of minutes. I want to read you a quote from the Lewis article, the No Stats all-star article from 10 years ago. This is one that shows up in classrooms sometimes, and it's a very much decision-making principle. You just don't hear it on the basketball court that often. I'm curious how you think about this. The quote from Lewis is, knowing the odds, Battier can pursue an inherently uncertain strategy with total certainty. He can devote himself to a process and disregard the outcome of any given encounter. This is critical because bas- because in basketball, as in everything else, luck plays a role, and Battier cannot afford to let it distract him. Does, is that was he overplaying it, or is that really where you got? And how how hard is it for a player to get to that place? That's a true quote, and that's that's something I try to, to remember uh, every single day in my job. You know, we live in the probabilities, and you you have to look if you have to take a probabilistic view of, of basketball because there's so much randomness. Uh, makes and misses, uh, for the most part, are are random. Uh, the the bounce of a, of a ping pong ball, which determines whether 
you get a great draft pick or not is, is random. Mm-hmm. And you just have to put yourself in a position to give yourself the best chance of success. And whether that happens or not, it's luck. But you've given yourself the best chance statistically. And if you do that enough over a long enough time, you're going to have success more than not. You're preaching to the choir here, and it's phenomenal to hear someone who's played at your level talk about it in that way. How hard is it to get that message across to younger players or even veteran players that they haven't thought about it that way? You know, the, the level of stats education is uh, is is not as as high as we we would hope. But that's our job. Yeah, our job is right. to is to teach and to educate. And you know, our goal is to to be able to to uh, get every player to, to draw a normal curve and, and and be able to explain standard deviation. That's a win. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a win. That'd be a big win. Okay, now we know what Shane's doing down in Miami. He's drawing normal <laughs> curves and talking variance with the players. That's awesome. All right, listen, Shane, we're going we're gonna to let you go. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. On the way out, we're going to give you a little treat, something you may not have heard for a while. I remember hearing this on the streets of Minneapolis after you won the national championship in your senior year. A little chant, little chant that the Dukies used to give you at, uh, at Cameron Indoor. And on the way out, we'll do that as a thank you. But that's been Shane Battier. Really appreciate your taking the time to be with us, calling in from Miami. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Of course. All right, that has been three quarters. We will come back after this for the fourth quarter. But... In homage to Shane Battier and Michael Lewis's 10-year-ago article, a little treat from Cameron Indoor Stadium back in the day.